Hello, and welcome to Round Around We Go. I'm Emily, I use she, they pronouns. Uh, I'm Paul, and I use he, him pronouns. And today we are going to Hyde Park Corner Station. So, where we're at with the podcast right now. First of all, thank you to everyone who has joined us and tweeted us and followed us and all those things. Um, We really appreciate that. We have said this in the end notes of other podcasts, but people might not have listened to those. This is the first podcast we have recorded since we started releasing them. So we recorded six episodes and then we took a break, spent months and months getting things ready, and then we now are recording more podcasts. So uh, that's very exciting. Uh, Also, it means this is our last podcast recorded in this location. We will probably have a better, smaller space, so our sound quality will hopefully improve from the next podcast. So that's exciting. Shall we start on Hyde Park Corner Station? Let's start. Hyde Park Corner opened on the 15th of December 1906 on what's now the London Underground Piccadilly Line. It was known at the time as the Great Northern Piccadilly and Brompton Railway. It is in Zone 1. It is in the London Borough of Westminster. And back in 2019, it served 4.44 million passengers. Hyde Park Corner has no level access from any part of the station. The station was designed by originally Leslie Green with refurbishment in the 1930s by Charles Holden and some later refurbishment as well by unknown architects. The origin of the name, the name Hyde, originally meant an area of land which could support a single family, approximately 120 acres, and in turn is derived from the old English word hue, meaning family. Uh, An area known as Hyde was used as monastery land until dissolved by Henry VIII, who kept it as a hunting park, thus becoming Hyde Park. Hyde Park Corner Station is served by buses 2, 9, 13, 14, 16, 19, 22, 23, 36, 38, 52, 74, 137, 148, 390, 414, N9, N16, N19, N22, N38, and N74. And the labyrinth is number 233 out of 270 and can be found in the ticket hall. What I think is exciting about Hyde Park Station, it is the first station that we actually went to after we drew it out of the bag. We happened to be nearby buying some trainers and thought, let's go to Hyde Park Station. And we did, and we visited it, which is lovely because I could also find the labyrinth at that point. But we're not talking about our visit to Hyde Park Corner quite yet. We need to talk about the history of it. Hyde Park Corner uh, has a very long history of being an important road junction on the approach to London for people coming from the west. Uh, It's the location of Apsley House, which was the home of the Duke of Wellington, and that was nicknamed Number One London because it was basically the first major grand building people approaching the city would reach. Being such a 
key location in the city, Hyde Park Corner, was the subject of a lot of early tube railway proposals, uh, at least 10 of them that we've been able to discover in our research, Um, among which are some really early ones going all the way back to 1893. There was the Edgware Road and Victoria Railway was going to call at Hyde Park Corner. It was going to be a station on the proposed Central London Railway Loop Line, which we talked about earlier. Yeah, we talked Um, about in Hammersmith episode where we would have one side of the Central Line becoming a tiny loop and the other side being a giant loop that went from where the Central Line is now down to sort of where the District Line is. So that was it was a proposal on that line. Yeah, it was going to be... It was proposed as a station on the 1905 Kearney Underground Monorail, uh, which would have linked Cricklewood and Oval. Uh, it was a rather bizarre scheme to build underground monorails that the promoter Kearney kind of went on about and on about and on about for a very long time and nothing ever happened. But It's a shame. It could have been a fun, fun bit been. of his. Could have been. Uh, it was also proposed as a station in 1897 on the Brompton and Piccadilly Circus Railway from South Kensington to Piccadilly Circus, which is the only one of those going through Hyde Park Corner that ever did actually get built, although not under that name. Yeah, so it didn't... It That was the early version of it. You also had a second railway called the Great Northern and Strand Railway. That was a proposal at one point in time. So you had those two different proposals. And then Charles Tyson Yerkes, he comes along from America with a lot of money that he probably stole. Well, we definitely stole from somewhere. We didn't ask questions. We've talked about him before. He buys those proposals and puts them both together and creates the Great Northern Piccadilly and Brompton Railway, which is the original railway, well, the original Piccadilly Railway, which went from Hammersmith to Finsbury Park. So that was the the line. And we haven't really talked about that yet. We touched on it a bit at Earl's Court, but we didn't really get into the details of that history. So that's the history of the Piccadilly line. This is my dream, Paul. It's a station that's just on one line. It hasn't changed ownership 15 times. The name has changed slightly, but Piccadilly is always there. I'm happy with Hyde Park Corner. It's not being served by a whole load of different random mainline railway companies trundling their trains through at some point in the Victorian era. Exactly. It's the dream. Yeah. It's a nice, simple tube station. But with a lot of exciting history to it. A lot has gone on at this station. We want to talk quite a bit about the design of this station because it's the first station originally fully designed by Leslie Green that we've featured. We did talk a bit about Leslie Green when we did Elts Court Station because he designed the tiling on the Piccadilly Line platforms down there, but not the surface building. This is the first full Leslie Green station that we're looking at. What a thrill. I mean that seriously. I mean that seriously. I'm not I'm not being sarcastic. I um but yeah, I think it's exciting to have the first of these stations also because there are so many Leslie Green stations on the network. And when we get to those stations, we'll probably touch on it briefly, but this will kind of be our introductory course to those because we don't want to have to go into it every single time. And in case you don't know, Leslie Green was the architect who was commissioned to design pretty much, but not quite, all of the stations on the three tube lines that were being built by Charles Tyson Yerkes' company, the Underground Electric Railways of London. He was appointed back in 1903 as the architect for their stations. He would be paid £2,000 a year, plus office expenses, by the Underground Group, the nickname of the company, 
which equates to £250,000 per year approximately in 2021 money. So actually not that much for for a commission that huge. Yeah, Yeah. given that was for running an entire architect's practice, not just his salary. Uh, If you compare that to... So the costs of the architectural practices designing the new crossrail stations, for example, I think that would be pretty minimal. And I think it's quite important to distinguish what Leslie Green was responsible for and what he wasn't responsible for. Because his contract was initially to design the surface level station buildings, uh, which are all very distinctive. And I think we'll talk in a minute about what makes them so recognisable and so important. He wasn't responsible for designing the layout of all the underground tunnels. So people often talk about the features of these early underground group stations. They all have key similarities in the layout. So they have lift shafts which go down from the booking office at the surface down to platform level. They tend to have a one-way system where there's different tunnels from the lifts to the platforms and then for passengers going from the platforms back to the lifts as they exit. But That kind of layout detail wasn't the job of Leslie Green. Also, that kind of layout detail predates Leslie Green stations. You had those in the city and south London railway stations, which were the first deep level tube stations. You even had those in the Metropolitan Railway on some of their stations, I believe, people coming in and out and different entrances. I've been told that that was parliamentary mandated. I don't know if that's true. I think it was... Uh, the Board of Trade who specified that there had to be one-way systems and the stations which don't have them, there are a couple like Aldwych, for example, had to get exemptions from the Board of Trade if they thought there was going to be a very low footfall. Yeah, so that that sort of design isn't specific to Leslie Green. That was generally underground stations at the time. Yeah, and it would have been the engineers of the underground group who were responsible for putting those requirements into practice in designing the specifics of the tunnels. But Leslie Green initially started off designing the surface level station buildings. He was then later on given additional responsibility for designing the pattern of the tile work in the underground tunnels. In fact, they'd already started decorating Trafalgar Square station on the Bakerloo line, which was one of the underground group's other lines, before Leslie Green got that job. And it would have just had plain white tiling. And that's probably what would have ended up in all the other stations if Leslie Green hadn't been given this job. But then he was given responsibility for the decorative tiling and really did a quite amazing job, which, again, I think we'll talk about. Yeah, I don't know if how usual that would have been. I suspect it was quite unusual at the time because today that would be an interior designer's job or there would be someone else who was part of that. I don't know. I mean, tiling seems not within the, the, the scope of an architect's role. I think it very much depends on the station. I mean, if you look at the stations on, for example, the Jubilee Line extension built back in the 1990s, the tiling was very much part of the overall design of each station and they hired really big name architects to do those. Mm -hmm. So as an example, North Greenwich Station has blue tiling with orange highlights and that was all part of the scheme that the architectural firm and the designers would have come up with. Yeah, I guess, and if you also look at Green Park, that that tile design when you've got between the Piccadilly and the Jubilee where they sort of shift the colour scheme as you go along. That is very much part of the station and I presume part of the the architect's design. Absolutely. So I guess I'm not thinking as much of stations, I guess other buildings, the, the interior design may not have been the architect's realm. But I also don't know if that's something that's changed since that time. I think it would certainly on these stations have probably been the first time the architect really got involved with the tiling because all the 
previous tube stations just had very plain white tiling, maybe with a kind of relief line to give a bit of patterning. You know, they have some floral tiles on some of the early city and South London stations, yeah. but nothing that really required heavy architectural design of the sort that Leslie Green got stuck into. So should we just sort of describe Leslie Green stations for the the un, uninitiated or for people who know, I think there's lots of people who know what a Leslie Green station looks like, but might not know Leslie Green's name specifically. So the really distinctive features from the outside of these stations is the tiling on the front. It's called Oxblood Red Tiles. That's the name that's used for them all the time. I don't know what an oxblood actually looks like, so I don't know where that name comes from. It's because it was the colour of the blood of an ox. Yes, I get, much. I get that, Paul, but I've never seen the blood of an ox, so I don't know. I mean, I get that someone got... I just don't know who where the crossover fell between people who had seen ox's blood and people who had seen these tiles. It was used as an ingredient in some types of mortar yeah, was to strengthen it. Yeah, so I yeah. guess the people making tiles quite possibly would have seen Ox's blood. Makes sense. It's, it's one of those questions that I, I think some people ask and I don't know the answer to. So we have an answer there. That's lovely. And these stations are really distinctive in their appearance. They've usually got half moon windows uh, sort of above the entrances on the top level. There's usually two floors to them. The main entrance with, well, originally it wouldn't have had this, but most of them very early on had a canopy with the station name on them you have the level above with the half moon windows and sort of port cabin circular windows very distinct lamps that hang out of them although those are mostly gone on any i don't know if there's any that still have those today the original lamps no they were something called uh, maxim arc lamps which would have been incredibly bright and they would have made the tiles really quite spectacular at night but no they're all long gone now and uh, the stations also, they were steel frame structures, so that was sort of imported from America as a the structure behind skyscrapers, really. And that meant that they could stack, I say this like it's Lego, but essentially they could put offices or flats above and make extra money from those things above, because the underground group was just trying to make as much money as they possibly could. And then inside the stations, the tiling was very unique in the ticket halls. You've got these green these sort of really deep green tiles that have either pomegranate or acanthus leaves on them and very specific tiling patterns that are very recognizable in these stations. If you want to see nicely intact ones, go to someplace like Holloway Road because they've got really lovely intact designs there in the station. And then you've got these platform designs. So these have unique tiling patterns to each station. And Paul's going to get into a little bit more detail about the history of these unique tiling patterns and different colors. Not necessarily different colors at every station, but sometimes they're slightly close colors, but with different tiling patterns. And the name of the station in the tiles at either end. And lots of different Leslie Green stations survive in different forms. Sometimes it's just the ticket hall building. Sometimes it's just the platform. Sometimes it's none of that. And High Park Corner is interesting in that it has the building still there, but that building is not part of the underground. So that ticket hall building with the oxblood red tiles is not part of the underground. But once you get down to the platform, it's very Leslie Green. And I think what's the genius about the Leslie Green stations is they were designed basically to be mass produced. They were supposed to be a design that could be quickly replicated at all of the sites he had to design stations for, which in total was... He claimed uh, in his own sort of attempt to get made a fellow of the uh, Royal Institute of British Architects when he was applying to them. He said he was 50 stations he'd designed, but in fact it was probably 46 stations. 
Uh, 11 on the Bakerloo line, 19 on the Piccadilly line, 16 on the Charing Cross branch of the Northern Line, as we call it today, or the Hampstead Tube back then. And with so many stations design, you know, that was the efficient thing to do. In fact, uh, it was described in the Railway News on the 10th of June 1905. The architect, Mr Leslie W Green of 71 Strand, has aimed at securing an elevation available for all stations which will at once attract attention and proclaim the sight of the stations to the public. The similarity, of course, also carries the advantage of economy, and as there are altogether some 50 of these buildings, this is obviously an important consideration, which really sums up the whole ethos of his designs. They were attractive, they're recognisable, and it was something you could just keep on churning out across so many different locations. Yeah, I mean, it's it's economical, but it's also a great branding tool. Those stations are so recognizable. You can see them from so far away and go, oh, it's a tube station, I can go there. And this is before you had roundels sticking out and signage on the street to these stations. They really caught your eye. You could find those and know that's how you could navigate to elsewhere in the city. Yeah, this was pretty much the first example of the kind of consistent high-quality branding across multiple different tube lines that later became such a key element of the London Underground as we know it today and the whole Transport for London system as we know it today. And I do love some of the details about how they came up with or sort of how they came up with the companies that were going to do this work. For example, the Oxblood red tiling on the facade was bought basically by the foot. They held a competition between three different tiling companies each of which would have to build uh, a wall section with two piers supporting an arch at the Lily Bridge depot of the underground group. And whichever company built the best little bit of wall section was the one that would get the contract, which ended up being the Leeds Fireclay Company. Uh, and they were paid 10 shillings per foot for the facades of the stations with a deduction for any openings. They didn't get paid where there were doors, basically. <laughs> and that's the hardest bit to tile around openings. <laughs> you would have thought so, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, they didn't get paid for that. And that Oxblood Red facade, you see it very prominently on the original entrance to Hyde Park Corner Station, which today it's not in use as the entrance anymore, but it still does survive. It's still in very good condition. And you can still see today, it looks like a tube station, even though it hasn't been one for getting on for 90 years now. And then, as you say, the interiors, booking hall level, when you came in through the door, they would also be very consistent. They had the floral pattern tiles, and then they had the distinctive patterns of the tiles once you got down to the platform level as well. Although that was for kind of the same reason, but with an opposite approach, because the intention was to make the platforms recognisable, but rather than doing it by making them all look the same, it was by making them all look different. Of course, yeah. And that was actually an idea which apparently was American in origin. But of course, you said Charles Tyson Yerkes, he was American. He had quite a sort of strong hand on the companies that he was running. He took a lot of interest in the details of them. He was known to be very keen on the decorative arts. He had a massive art collection acquired largely with his dodgily gained fortune i mean all of his money was dodgily gained i mean the this sounded somewhat legitimate but i think there was still probably lots of dodgy things going on oh i mean the whole the whole funding for the underground group was based on pretty much borderline dishonest predictions of how many people would use the railways once they open and it nearly went bust the minute charles tyson yerkes died in 1905 but yeah, so down at platform level, all different. And the Daily Express, back on the 16th of June, 1905, 
uh, had an interview with Leslie Green in which this was discussed, and it says, Every station will have a distinctive colour or group of colours, which will be conspicuously visible to the passengers directly the train enters. All that will remain necessary will be for the passengers themselves to become familiar with the stations which the colours respectively represent. The idea is American in its origin, and the adaptation of the colours is in the hands of the well-known architect Mr Leslie Green. In each station, said Mr Green to an express representative yesterday, there will be a coloured dado running the whole length of the station platform, while curved coloured bands will be carried up from it to meet a coloured longitudinal band on the side of the station opposite to the platform. With so many stations to consider, it can be imagined that very great difficulty has been experienced in getting distinctive groups of colours. Where the colours are at all similar, however, the devices are so different as to be easily distinguishable. I think that is a bit of a stretch, to be honest. I mean, yes, they are distinct. There are different patterns on each. And I think possibly in a world in which you weren't listening to some music and looking at your phone and hoping you can connect to the Wi-Fi at a station and it's a new thing, you might be a little bit more attuned to it. And I think there's certain stations that if you travel through regularly, you do know what the pattern looks like. But I mean, if someone asks you to meet them at Hyde Park Corner and you've never been there before, you're not going to necessarily, you know, it's like saying to them, uh, okay, it's the one with those like tiles that kind of make a, this shape. It, it's quite tricky to do. So I think it is a brilliant idea and I think it comes across really well and it's beautiful. But also I think in terms of a navigate, navigate, navigatability, can I? Navigability? Navigability, is that the word? Yeah. I think that's the word. Um, in terms of that, I think it's, it's not necessarily as good as it could be. But of course, it's the time before signage and announcements on the trains where you were going and all those sorts of things. Well, there was signage, but... Well, yeah, it's an interesting one because, I mean, they had some signage. They would typically have had on these stations the name of the station in big letters at either end of the platform and again in the middle. But despite putting all this effort into designing the pattern tiles, they didn't seem to think of the obvious step of just having the station name repeated smaller all the way along it, which was later implemented through from the sort of 1930s or so onwards. I wonder if it was, and I, we probably don't have any documentary evidence of this, if it was more crowded in the two end carriages because people needed to see where they were going. So they were like, oh, I got to go to the end one to see if I can read the station name. Well, you might have expected that. I suppose also the end carriages tend to get crowded because that's near the exits and entrances as well. Not necessarily, not in this. Like, some of them are in the middle, many. but yes. Um, but also they would have they wouldn't have had uh, electronic announcements like we have today but they would have had yeah. people shouting out the station name because every single carriage when these railways opened would have had manually operated gates mm-hmm. and every one of these gates would have had somebody standing there to open it when the train arrived at the station close it before it departed and they would have shouted out the station name so actually if you couldn't see the station name there was somebody yelling it in your ear anyway yeah uh, but it was as it says, as the Daily Express was saying, it, it helped you navigate. It was an idea that had originally been on some New York subway stations. There were a couple of the lines there which had a s- small sections of patterned tiling that were unique to each different station, although not stretching along the whole length in the way that it gets on the uh, underground group. If we, have any, if we have any New Yorkers listening who are particularly keen on subway history, let us know a little bit more about that if you know it, because we don't know very much about the New York subway. I think something that is important to dispel as a bit of a myth as well is there's a commonly held idea that the whole idea of these patent tiles was to help illiterate people 
navigate the underground if they couldn't read the station names at all, uh, which I think a lot of people think the Victorian era therefore meant low levels of literacy among the general population. And that was certainly true in the early Victorian era. But by 1900, when these underground railways were being constructed, uh, certainly the sources I've found indicate that they thought the number of percentage of people who were literate at the time who could read was something like 97%. So a tiny proportion of yeah. people who wouldn't have been able to read. Now, that might be a bit of an exaggeration. They could have been overestimating. And also, I mean, we don't know how the veracity of statistics taken back then. Statistics was a very new and kind of frowned, not frowned upon, but kind of looked down upon thing. It's interesting when you think about these stations being built in terms of statistics, because they didn't do any kind of planning, like how many people would actually use this station? They weren't looking at those kind of forward planning things. They were just, let's put as many stations as possible and hope people will use them, which means a number of them got closed. So I don't know what level of veracity those statistics have, but I do think it probably was fairly high. And there would have, of course, been some people who, I mean, I've had this experience traveling in Moscow or Beijing on the on the, their subway systems and sort of going, uh, I have no idea what these stations are. So if someone can't read English letters, but I don't think that's going to be that big of a concern. I think it is. It's more just a sort of design meets utility thing, which is always nice. I think something else that's intriguing is what level of involvement Leslie Green actually had in designing these tile patterns, because it seems definite that it was him who was giving the overall directions, this idea of pattern tiles at every station, different combination of tile pattern and colour to make them recognisable, and he was certainly paid for that. Uh, we know that in on the 25th of June 1907, the managing director of the Underground Group, who was George Gibb at the time, wrote to Leslie Green saying his contract for designing all the stations was going to expire at the end of the year, but he'd be paid up until then. Um, at the time, Leslie Green was in very poor health and died not long after, so he wasn't doing much active work, but they were recognising him for what he'd achieved so far. But they also specifically paid him £750 for all the platform design work that was above and beyond what he'd previously been commissioned for when his original contract was just for the surface level station buildings. And that £750, it's about the equivalent of £92,000 today. So again, it doesn't seem like a colossal amount of money, but pay and the value of money was all rather different back then. But then the detail of, you know, specifically which tile goes where, exactly how that was executed, it's not clear whether that was the responsibility of Leslie Green's architectural practice or the different companies that put the tiles onto the station platforms, which there were several different ones. Um, I think originally Charles Tyson Yerkes at the Underground Group wanted to hire a company called Moore & Co from Shropshire to put the tiles onto the station platforms. But they had an exclusive contract with another company called Simpson & Son, who would act as their distributors and installers. So the underground group instead had to go to Simpson & Son. And they were the ones who did the central section of the Piccadilly line, including Hyde Park Corner. And you can still see their Maker's Mark tile on quite a few stations. I think whenever we talk about the other 45 Leslie Green design stations, and obviously there's lots of them that don't look like a Leslie Green station anymore, have been changed... We're going to have to say, please go back to Hyde Park Corner and listen to that episode, because I think we do get into, I think this is more detail than we'll be able to get into on every Leslie Green episode, but we will refer people back here. Um, have we got anything else on Leslie Green or the design? I think that pretty much covers Leslie Green's design work, and it was a real masterpiece of 
beautiful decorative tiling. It still is functional today, I think. So you can still, at least at some stations, I find Covent Garden is dead easy to recognise with the orange tiling that you see. So I guess the last thing to discuss in the design is the lifts. And all these Leslie Green stations were built with lifts, except for a couple that were close enough to the surface that they didn't need the lifts. Yeah, because escalators had kind of been in their formative invention period at the time, but they weren't at a stage where they could be practically used on tube stations. So all of these stations, as you say, they all had lifts down to the platforms from the surface. I think that's not quite correct, because most of the time it wasn't down to the platforms. It was down to a level that you had to then walk down to the platforms. But I think that is an important distinction, because I think, you know, it's so sad they took all these lifts out because the stations would have been accessible, but actually most of them wouldn't have been accessible anyway, because there were still steps down to the platforms from there. Absolutely. And in some cases, steps down from the street level to before you reach the lifts as well, just to make it even less accessible than it would have been. But all of these lifts were built by the Otis Company. The underground group back in 1904 originally ordered 170 lifts, uh, but then they were trying to save money all the time, so they only get 140 of them delivered. Three of those ended up at Hyde Park Corner, which they realised wasn't enough lifts, so in 1913 they took a spare lift from Brompton Road Station, which had more lifts than it needed, uh, to increase it up to four lifts, they would have had two lifts in each lift shaft. So I guess originally they had one full lift shaft and then one which had some space in, and that's where they put the extra lift from Brompton Road in 1913. Yeah, and for those unaware, Brompton Road was another station on the Piccadilly line. It fell between South Kensington and Knightsbridge and just didn't have enough people visiting to be be of use and had, was it six lifts originally? Four four? lifts originally. Four lifts originally. And yeah, it was barely used and the trains hardly ever stopped there. So that's why they took the lift to Hyde Park Corner. But I think that leads us nicely into our next section, which covers the redevelopment of the station. So the station has been redeveloped many times, and the first of those redevelopments opened in 1932 on the 23rd of May. And this was... Essentially because escalators were becoming popular, the station needed more capacity, they essentially wanted to close the main original Leslie Green tiled entrance and create a new entrance that made the space for the escalators. So there were the escalators put in and a new ticket hall, an underground ticket hall, was built beneath the road. So Knightsbridge Road, either side of the road, was an entrance and there was an underground ticket hall. And this ticket hall was designed by Charles Holden. We are holding out two later episodes for actually talking about Charles Holden because we'll talk about some of the bigger stations on the extensions that he designed. But he designed this underground ticket hall because he was the uh, architect of choice at the time. Leslie Green had died when he was 33 and we're both 33. So that makes me wonder what we've been doing with our lives. But uh, Holden took over as the architect of choice and he designed this new underground ticket hall. And this was something that was happening a lot around the time. Other stations were also rebuilt. I think most famously among them Piccadilly Circus with the underground ticket hall that you see today. And what Holden built here at Hyde Park Corner would have looked a lot like the ticket hall that exists today at Manor Park Station further north on the Piccadilly line. I think you mean Manor House, but yes. I do, I do. I mean Manor, Manor House Station. And we will be, we have got some photos of Manor House, or at least one that we'll share on Instagram and our Twitter to let you know what that looks like if it's not a place you know. 
So there would have been lots of marble on the walls, there would have been columns supporting the ceiling, and these were a really intriguing feature actually. They were hexagonal columns with glass sides, and those glass sides would have been displays showing all the destinations you could reach on the underground from Hyde Park Corner Station, complete with the fares, how much it would cost to get to each place, which was a kind of slightly updated version of what the really early tube stations used to have, which was massive painted boards outside the station entrance listing everywhere you could travel and the fares. So they'd transferred that indoors and illuminated it. Uh, my favourite feature of the Charles Holden design for Hyde Park Corner Station was that there would have been huge glass display cases all the way down one wall. And these would have been an exhibit showing lots of model buses and they would have been demonstrating the history of the development of buses from 1890 through to when the display was put on in 1932, starting off with old-fashioned horse-drawn buses and then working their way all the way up to the most modern of the time, double-decker petrol diesel buses. And actually some of those models still survive, they're in the collection of the London Transport Museum today. They're huge, they're kind of 50-60 centimetre long buses. Not painted by Boris Johnson. No, no, they actually exist for a start. And they're a lot more detailed than just being wooden crates. <laughs> and it's unlike you to get excited by buses. But I get excited by models. Yes, that is an important distinction there. At the same time this happened, the adjacent station, Down Street, also closed. Down Street had always been a very little used station. Um, it was right between... Hyde Park Corner and Green Park Station, which was originally known as Dover Street Station, never got many passengers. It was basically in just such a posh part of London, nobody needed to use it. Not all the trains even stopped there. And yeah, with the opening of escalators at Hyde Park Corner Station, it basically became totally redundant and closed down on the 21st of May 1932. So two days before the uh, new escalators opened at Hyde Park Corner. And in fact, with Down Street Station having been closed, it was then kind of part of the platforms there were rebuilt. They could turn it into or build a siding for the Piccadilly Line trains underground as a way to park them out of the way of the running tunnels. And that's still there to this day. Sometimes when there's disruption, they use it to turn trains round and only go halfway along the route. And then during the Second World War, Down Street Station was used as the headquarters of the Railway Executive Committee, who were running basically Britain's entire railways from an underground bunker in the old Down Street tube station. Now, the other thing that happened shortly after this redevelopment happened of Hyde Park Corner Station was a royal visit by the then Prince of Wales on the 14th of February 1933. Now this was a sort of visit he wanted to meet some of the staff some of the staff that were originally on the City and South London Railway. Um, he also visited Wood Green Station but we found out an interesting fact about what this visit coincided with. Yes it seems this visit was not just because he fancied a day out and a ride on the tube, but it was also a bit of a political lobbying exercise. Because the visit took place on exactly the same day as the third reading of the London Passenger Transport Bill in Parliament. Now, to put that into context, up until this point, 
most of the London undergrounds, all of the tube lines, all of the other lines other than the Metropolitan Railway, were run by a company called the Underground Electric Railways of London that was very much an independent, private, profit-driven company. They also ran most of the buses, they ran a lot of the trams. They were the company that Charles Tyson Yerkes had founded all the way back in the very beginning of the 20th century and had grown enormously since then. By this point, they were run by Lord Ashfield, who'd effectively been running the company since about 1908. And he had realised that it would be a lot more effective to have not multiple competing private companies running London's transport, but instead to have a single state-run monopoly on are you, transport. Are you saying he thought nationalisation was a good idea? He absolutely did. Um, and he, as the chairman of the Underground Electric Railways of London, was very much lobbying Parliament to have a state-owned company, or a state-run company at least, formed, which would run transport in London. And that's the organisation which today we know as London Transport, which existed from 1933 onwards, and which would effectively become modern-day transport for London. And the creation of London Transport, which was officially known as the London Passenger Transport Board, was enacted by this Act of Parliament, the London Passenger Transport Bill. So it seems very likely to me that this visit, this royal visit, where Lord Ashfield was the one who was showing around the Prince of Wales and showing him round Hyde Park Corner Station and Wood Green Station and taking him for a ride on a Piccadilly Line train, was lobbying. It was demonstrating that the powers that be were very much in support of what Lord Ashfield wanted to happen and that Parliament should approve this London Passenger Transport Bill at its third reading and therefore London Transport should be created, which was successful. Yeah, exactly. And for those who don't know the parliamentary context of this, a third reading of a bill is when that bill passes in the House. So it would have been in the House of Commons that day. And this is after the time that the Commons got more power than the Lords. So if this bill passed in the Commons, if the MP passed this bill, it would go to the Lords, they would read it over, they might make some changes, they could delay it a year, but they couldn't stop that bill. So this was the most important vote to get this through. So yeah, it seems like not a coincidence. <laughs> Another bit of redevelopment at this station was the introduction of anti-suicide pits in 1934. Now, if you don't want to hear about anti-suicide pits, just skip ahead a minute because we're only going to be talking about them for a minute. The anti-suicide pits are something that anyone who's travelled on the deep tube lines of the London Underground will have noticed within the stations, between the two rails on which the trains run, there is a trough, it's about 60 centimetres deep, and it's there to catch anyone or anything who, for whatever reason, falls off the station platform. And those were installed right from the beginning on the old City and South London Railway when that opened in 1890. They were installed on some of the new extensions of the underground that opened in the 1920s, and it was decided they were such a good idea that from 1934 they would start installing these, retrofitting them, at other London Underground stations which had been built without this pit between the rails. Uh, and the first of these stations to be rebuilt like that was Hyde Park Corner, where 
they basically just dug a deep trough between the rails in the platform to make that pit exist. That happened in 1934, and then they actually managed to convert all of the other stations on the London Underground by the end of 1935. Now, the station was redeveloped again in the 1960s, which essentially was just undoing all the nice things they did in the 1930s. Yeah, all of that beautiful Charles Holden design was stripped out of the booking hall. The display case, which had once held the model buses, was removed and it was all replaced with some rather dull tiling. Uh, And this was part of a redevelopment which was, to be honest, mostly driven by the need for building a road underpass on the road outside. cars. So they had to reconfigure the entrances, which had been some stairs down into the ramps and stairs from different parts of the road that we know today, and change the route into the station entrance. And yeah, it became a lot more boring. I like that they've got ramps now, but nothing else is accessible. Like, oh, we've got ramps in case you want to come down here and then realize. I mean, obviously, there's people who the ramps will help be helpful for and then can use the escalators. But And it, for crossing the road as well. Yes, yeah, but it is a bit of a, a kind of kind of sad tease of a a redevelopment but in the 1990s they did some more redevelopment which was at least more sympathetic to the original station and because the Holden redevelopment didn't do anything to the platforms those maintained their original Leslie Green tiling now they were in poor condition by the 90s and this was sort of the end of the 90s and so they started to not necessarily replace the tiles. They refurbished some of the tiles. They replaced ones that were broken. But it is the only station in central London that still... On the Piccadilly line. Sorry, on the Piccadilly line, yes. <laughs> that still has the original tiles, or at least some of them. Now, we didn't even talk about the actual tile pattern in the section where we talked about Leslie Green and tile patterns, probably because it is the ugliest station of any of the Leslie Green stations. It is... So mostly brown, and then the pattern on the wall is this really ugly yellow color. I like the color yellow. It just, because also it's cream, so there's there's cream tiles, and then there's this yellow as well that you can barely see. It looks like the contents of a toilet. It is not a pleasant design, but you know it's it's original, and that's that's nice to have. Yeah, it's pretty putrid. But it does survive because by the 1990s, the policy of the London Underground had changed to retain heritage features wherever they could, rather than completely obliterating them. So we do have this original Leslie Green tiling, and not only the tiling, but some of the signage survives as well, uh, which is really rare that there are still on the platforms the original directional signs, which would have been seen by passengers as they came From the bottom of the lifts, they would have come along a corridor, down a flight of steps, onto the platforms, and then they would have turned one direction and there would have been a sign on the platform saying for trains to Hammersmith, and the other platform would have had a sign saying for trains to Finsbury Park, because those were the original termini of the Piccadilly line when it first opened. And the only other place that's still in a... you can still see those signs is at Holloway Road, so it's quite special to have those in the station. I mean, even if the rest of the tiles are really ugly. Holloway Road, much nicer tiles than this one. So that's something to watch out for when you're at Hyde Park Corner Station. Uh, And the reason those survive is because when the escalators were installed, they came down onto the platform at a different location from where passengers would have entered when they used to get there via the lifts. And in fact, those corridors that used to link the lifts to the platform still exist today. 
During the Second World War, they were used as air raid shelter accommodation for London Underground staff, and today they're just kind of a bit of a storage area, but they're still there. I've been through them when I was doing some work at Hyde Park Corner Station. Oh, yeah, so make everyone feel jealous. That's that's nice, Paul. That's really nice. So while that 90s redevelopment was mostly about platform level restoration and things like that, there was also some changes to the entrances and the ticket hall. And one of these things was that they put a lot of panels up on the ramps you enter the station via that tell the history of the area and have paintings and drawings about the history of the area. And we've got some photos of those and actually some video footage as well that we'll put on our Instagram and Twitter account this week. So take a look for those if you're interested and haven't been to Hyde Park Corner recently or at all. Now, the question left, of course, is what has happened to that original Leslie Green building, because it still stands there today. If you go down Knightsbridge Road, you will see that building across from Hyde Park. So that building, once the new entrance was opened, it became a lion's tea house. Now, a lot of this we're sort of piecing together from different images and things we saw from the time because we can't go back on Google Maps quite far enough to see what it was in the 30s. But we know in 1934, the area above it, the oversight development, as it would be called today, is the Parkview Hotel. So that's what's in there. But we also know there's a little bit of St. George's Hospital history there as well. Yeah, by the 1950s, the Lyons Tea House was still serving people their tea and cakes on the ground floor inside the old station building. But by that point, what had been the hotel had been converted into the temporary outpatients department for St. George's Hospital. Uh, Now, St George's Hospital was a massive hospital which used to exist just across the road from Hyde Park Corner Station. It opened all the way back in 1733 in a building called Lanesborough House, which they had purchased from the Duke of Westminster for £6,000. Now, over the years, the hospital grew enormously until... Not only did they have to use the space above the old station building, but eventually it was decided in the 1970s they would move away to a brand new site in Tooting. And by the time in the 1980s they had completely vacated their original building in Hyde Park Corner, the then Duke of Westminster had a look at the uh, contract of sale from when his distant ancestor had sold the place and noticed that there was a clause saying that if the hospital ever wanted to sell their site that he'd sold to them, he could buy it back again at the original price. So the Duke of Westminster in the 1980s purchased from the hospital this amazing central London site for £6,000, which by the time was worth at least £60 million. It's... it's... What a terrible person. I mean, that's nearly £60 million that the NHS would get for selling that site. Do we need to bring back the French Revolution kind of things here? I don't want to get that political, but what a terrible... Surely there was a lot of controversy about that at the time. It does... I'm surprised I couldn't find anything, you know, vast outcries. It was just noted as a kind of amusing side story in articles I read, but... Ha ha ha, 60 million stolen from the NHS. It seems pretty horrendous. And to compound that, they then went on to spend hundreds of millions of pounds on turning the old hospital building into a luxury hotel called the Lanesborough Hotel. 
<laughs> of course, why would they not? Um, but we do know that's the hotel that was beside and briefly also on top of the building, but the actual Leslie Green Station itself. We know at some point became pizza on the park. We're not sure the exact date of that. It was a jazz club, quite well-known jazz club, closed in 2010 to amidst quite a lot of outcry. But I think, was that just the increasing rent? I think so. Well, it was taken over by, the, the site was bought by a company that wanted to convert that into a hotel as well. So then not only the original station building at ground floor level, but the oversight development on top of it all got converted into the Wellesley Hotel, which opened in 2012. And is a very, very posh hotel indeed. Yes, and remains the Wellesley Hotel today. So I think that covers a lot of Hyde Park Corner. There's obviously more we could cover, but we can't go on. I mean, some people who are our followers on Twitter and things seem to be quite happy for us to go on for three hours, but I don't <laughs> think that we want to do that. So we've covered a lot, and that brings us on to our Onward Connections. Now, there are lots of buses that go through Hyde Park Corner and... It was a struggle for me to pick one, but I picked one that was quite close to my heart. It's the number 19. The 19 is a bus I rode a lot because I used to live on the second stop of it. So it goes from Finsbury Park to the south side of Battersea Bridge. It's funny because you can tell I'm a North Londoner because it goes from North London to South London, not the other way around. But it's a really lovely route. Actually, my friend Ruben, who listens to the podcast, he wrote a beautiful piece about what it's like to ride this route. I'll see if he'll let me share it. It goes down from Finsbury Park, down through Islington, down very central Shaftesbury Avenue, past Green Park, past Hyde Park Corner, and then goes down the King's Road in Chelsea and out to Battersea Road, which is quite a lovely route and a really long route to ride on. All right, so it is time. We are going to draw out our next station. This is so exciting because I haven't done this for about two months while we worked on the actual admin of getting the podcast out and went on holiday and did all these sorts of things. But it is time, Paul. So we've so, got the bag here. I shall give it a good shake. It. So you don't know I'm what station you're going to get. Oh, God, it better not be in a consecutive station. Okay, I've got two stuck together. Okay, now that's it. Ooh, okay, so we're still on the Piccadilly line. <laughs> we're at Boston Manor. Boston Manor? It's out towards Heathrow, I'm pretty sure. I think it's that direction. I don't know much about Boston I Manor at all. I think it's out towards Heathrow, or it's on the other branch up there. I'm. Sh is it on the Heathrow branch, or is it on the Uxbridge branch? Or is it entirely different line, and I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure this is on the Piccadilly line. It I'll feels trust Piccadilly you on that. line to me. Um, I don't know anything about Boston Manor or what the manor is. There are lots of questions to be answered about Boston Manor, so it's something we're going to find out about. Tune in next time. So I guess that brings us to the end of Hyde Park Corner. A uh, lot to cover with this station. A lot more we could have covered, but hopefully we did the station justice. We've got lots more Leslie Green stations to go to start covering them. If this is your first time listening, 
Thank you for joining us today. We make everything in this podcast ourselves. So I'm Emily Turner. I'm Paul Beckett Gray. The only thing we didn't do is our artwork, which is by the wonderful Colleen McIsaac. You can find them on Instagram at littlefoibleart. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at roundalroundpod, and you can email us at roundalroundpod at gmail.com. Now, one of the things people contact us on Instagram or Twitter about is the challenges we put at the end of every episode. And so I'd like to say really pleased that this week, our challenge for last week, which was to get from Kensal Green to Hyde Park Corner by going through Green Park on every possible line you can go through Green Park on. Callum Thornton got back to us on Twitter with that, so we shared his answer on Twitter, which is wonderful. Also would really like to give a shout out to Hugo. Um, I think many transport enthusiasts follow him on Twitter at the orange one, but Hugo did most of the previous challenges with the great flair, including our one that went from from Upney to Kensal Green on as many district line stations as possible. He managed to do it on every single district line station except for Richmond and Kew Gardens, which was impossible. So that was quite impressive. He also upped the scale of the one where you were meant to go from Totteridge and Whetstone to Upney with no stations that began with U and did it with going through only one station that had a U in it. So definitely upping the scale of the challenges here. Now this week's challenge is to go from Hyde Park Corner on the Piccadilly line to Boston Manor on the Piccadilly line. Now that could be very, very easy, but instead of taking the Piccadilly line from Hyde Park Corner to Boston Manor, what we'd like you to do, and again, this is just on a map, you could send us the answer, you don't need to actually ride the trains, but what we'd like you to do is come up with a route that gets you from Hyde Park Corner to Boston Manor that doesn't take you through any of the Piccadilly line stations between Hyde Park Corner and Boston Manor. So you can travel elsewhere on the Piccadilly line, but you can't travel through any of the stations between Hyde Park Corner and Boston Manor. So send us your answer. Most people sort of give us a list on Twitter. We've had people send us maps, those sorts of things, and we'll share those and give you a shout out at the end of the podcast. So hope to see some answers for that one next week. But I think that leaves us with just our references left. Yes, we use lots of sources in researching each station for our podcast each week, and Hyde Park Corner is no exception. We used books including The Underground Stations of Leslie Green by David Leboff, Tiles of the Unexpected by Douglas Rose, London Underground Stations by David Leboff, The Piccadilly Tube, The First Hundred Years by Mike Horn, Underground Architecture by David Lawrence, Building London's Underground by Anthony Badsey Ellis, Rails Through the Clay, A History of London's Tube Railways by Alan Arthur Jackson and Desmond F. Croom. Hidden London, Discovering the Forgotten Underground by David Bounds, Chris Nix, Siddy Holloway and Sam Mullins. London's Lost Tube Schemes by Anthony Badsey Ellis. Labyrinth, A Journey Through London's Underground by Tamsin Dillon, Will Self, Mark Wallinger, Marina Warner, Christian Woolmar and Louise Koish. Why Do Shepherds Need a Bush? London's Underground History of Tube Station Names by David Hilliam and What's in a Name? Origins of Station Names on the London Underground by Cyril M. Harris. 
We also used the Hansard record for the House of Commons debate on the London Passenger Transport Bill from Tuesday the 14th of February 1933. We used a paper on Education, Literacy and the Reading Public by Amy J. Lloyd. We also used an independent newspaper article about the world's most expensive hotel put up for sale by Cahal Milmo from 17th of September 2011. We used the website of the London Transport Museum to look at their photographic archive of old pictures of Hyde Park Corner Station, and that's the only way we know about the royal visit by the Prince of Wales and Lord Ashfield that we mentioned earlier in the programme. We also used the website of St George's Hospital for their history, and the website Manor Castles, again, about the history of Lanesborough House, which housed St George's Hospital. And you can find the full publication details of all the books and links to the various websites we used in the show notes online. Fantastic. So that brings us to the end of Hyde Park Corner, and we hope you'll join us again next week for Boston Manor.